Pastor Javen will conclude the series called Exodus from Exile, exploring the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. This morning we'll, we'll look at what keeps us from returning to our destructive ways of living. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. Well, at the uh, risk of you losing you at the very beginning of the service, um, there was a Simpsons episode um, several years back. And uh, the Simpsons, in this Simpsons episode, um, Homer and Marge, Marge discovered that her their phone bill had exceedingly gone up. So she brought it to the attention of Homer and the family. And uh, so they went to the phone company. They talked to them about their, their bill. And Homer told them that I am not going to pay this bill. And so they cut their phone lines out. And they didn't have any phone lines anymore. And so Homer decided he was going to take it upon himself to make sure that he got phone lines in his home. So he climbed the pole outside of their house. And he went up to the pole and he opened up the box and he looked at these different wires and different connections. And he said, all right, I'm going to, how about the red one? And he plugs a wire into the red one and he gets completely electrocuted and shocked. And so he decides, okay, how about the green one? And he plugs into the green one, gets completely electrocuted and shocked. Now here's where the fun begins uh, because Homer in his Homer way says, well, how about the red one? And he tries again, the red one, and he's electrocuted and shocked, just like he was the first time when he tried that. So then he says, well, what if we do red and green together? And he puts them both in there, both of them shocked him the first time. They both shock him again, this time knocking him off the pole. And then he climbs up that pole one more time, and in his Homer Simpson way, he says, what about the red one? And he plugs right back into the red one, getting shot completely again. Now, the silliness of that illustration from The Simpsons, it reminds me of the words of Solomon that he wrote in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. He said, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. And I thought, yep, that is the perfect illustration of what so many in our world and what we often find ourselves doing as well. We just keep repeating our foolishness and we wonder why did we not learn from the first time, right? Well, we are concluding today our series Exodus from Exile. This is the seventh week in the series, but we're concluding it today where we've been looking at the life of the Israelites as they have come out of bondage, out of captivity. First, they were taken captive by Babylon. Babylon was taken over by Persia. They're still in captivity, but God is now leading them home. God is now taking them back to their homeland. The whole reason they were in captivity was because of their sinful ways. They disobeyed God. God tried to warn them. They didn't listen. They didn't change, but God offered a way back home if they'd return to him. And so they did. And so from the very beginning, we said in week one, we said there's promises that come with sin. That's the whole reason they were in captivity. The promises that came with sin. They were told what was going to happen. There's promises that come with sin. There's promises that come from God. And the promises of God are far better than the promises of sin. They're way better. And when God begins to stir your heart and move you to follow him and to lead you out of the life that sin has you in and lead you towards the promises of God, we should follow that stirring and obey God and go in that direction towards the promises of God. When we looked in week two, we talked about the fact that as we move with God, as we follow God, as we walk in those promises, we learn and we realize that what God really wants, the longing of God for us is to have a heart that trusts him. And in our trust, we exemplify our trust with obedient hearts to God. We want to be obedient to God because we trust God and we have a trust for him. Now, sacrifice and service is a part of that, but we're not looking to just check off do's and don'ts. We are following God because we trust him and we realize obedience to him and what he has given us, the promises he's given us are far better than anything else. 
In week three, we talked about the fact that, you know, transcendence is what our soul, our, our soul has longing for transcendence. We long for this place in our life that, that's just like, that takes us to this place of beauty and perfection or whatever you want to call it. But we had discovered through the word of God that, and through these stories that transcendence in relationship with God can happen in not so transcendent surroundings. The, the people of God in, in Ezra and in Nehemiah, they experienced transcendence in their relationship with God, even though the circumstances and the situations around them were not so great. And we said it starts by having a heart that is constantly repentant and constantly in worship towards God. And week four, we looked at the fact that even in a life with God, we are not free from opposition. We're going to face opposition because we have a spiritual enemy that's constantly trying to come against us, constantly want to attack us. So what we need to do is we just need to keep praying keep working for him, keep following him and keep defending our hope in him. And we do that with love. We do it with humility. And we believe every second that Jesus has conquered everything and everything is in his hands and taken care of. Then in week five, we had that wonderful look at the fact that when we were a part of the family of faith together and we're following God and we're part of this whole journey together, you know, sin never wants to stop chasing us. Sin is always coming after us. And so as a part of our right and responsibility in the family of God, when we see sin beginning to grab a hold of the people that we love in the family of God, it's our right, it's our responsibility to go to them and lovingly talk to them about the sin we see creeping back up in their life. To keep them from falling back right back into those destructive ways and those things. We, we have to confront sin because if we don't confront sin, sin will just come right back up in our life. And then last week, we looked at the fact that the joy of the Lord is our strength. If you've been walking in that joy this week, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We said the root of that joy comes from the word of God because the word of God brings conviction to our life, but that conviction brings change. It's a good thing. And it ultimately ultimately allows us to celebrate who God is and what God is doing in our life. So we get to walk in that joy of the Lord. That is our strength. We get to carry that joy and we get to spread that joy to everybody that we come in contact with. That's our opportunity. That's the hope and the joy that we have. Now this week, we're going to finish up by looking at the fact that there is a still a part of our nature, of our flesh, that's constantly warring inside of us. And if we're not careful, we are a lot like Homer Simpson, that illustration in the beginning. We're a lot like what Solomon wrote about in Proverbs chapter 26. We're going to be like a dog that returns to its vomit. We're constantly going to return back to our foolish and destructive ways if we don't guard, if we don't protect, if we don't watch out for things in our life. You know, uh, it's, I, I've said before, one of my favorite hymns is a hymn called Come Thy Fount. And in this, in this hymn, in this song, there's a section of it where the writer, he writes these words. We sing, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. We're indebted to the grace of God. How great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. And then he says this, let your goodness, the goodness that we just sang about in praise and worship this morning, let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart. That heart that's, if we're not careful, we'll go right back into its foolish ways. Bind my wandering heart to thee. What is a fetter? A fetter was that chain. It was that thing that would be wrapped around an ankle and chained to a wall that kept a prisoner in place. That's what a fetter was. And what the writer of this hymn is saying is it is better for me to be chained to your goodness than it is for me to be chained to sin. And so he goes on in in the song and he says these powerful words. He says, prone to, do you know it? Wander. Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. That's our nature. That's the nature that is in us is constantly wrestling, constantly trying to pull us. And so we are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. But he says these powerful words. He said, here's my heart, God, take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. And that's, that needs to be our prayer. And so my desire today, as we close out this series, as we see how powerful it is and how, how, how important it is for us to constantly place our heart to God. Because what the, what the people in Zerubbabel's day that, that we saw from the very beginning, from Ezra, from Nehemiah, and everything they're facing, what they needed was not just a change in behavior. What they needed was a new heart. It was a heart transplant. It was a change of heart. And that's what they needed. And so we need to understand how powerful and how important it is to give our heart and say, God, take my heart. Seal it in your grace and in your mercy. And let me follow you. So as we move into this close, we're going to move into Nehemiah chapter 13 today. As we move into this, we're going to see that things are going okay since the renewal that we looked about last week when Ezra stood up and he read the word of God and everybody was convicted by the word of God and they went away though, not staying in their grief, but rejoicing in the change that was taking place in their life. Things have been going pretty good. And Nehemiah had gone back to work with King Artaxerxes. And we don't, we don't know exactly why Nehemiah went back. It could be that he was called by Artaxerxes. All right, I need you to come back. It could be that uh, the whole reason he left his place as a cupbearer with the king was for the purpose of going and rebuilding the wall. That was what his burden was. So he had finished that purpose. And so now he was going back to, to serve his place and his position with the king. And so he was there. We don't know how long he was there. Scripture doesn't tell us. Scholars believe it could have been anywhere from two to, to seven years that he was he was there, but Nehemiah returns and comes back to, to his homeland because he begins to get word that the leadership that he had given things over to are basically letting everything go to pot at this point. And, uh, and so he comes back. And so that's where we're going to be. Nehemiah chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can go there. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse one. That's where we're going to start. He says these words. Now he's, he's, he's kind of a flashback here. He's reminding us of what took place when they like we talked about last week, they opened the word of God and they read the word of God. And so he's reminding us of some of the words that they read and what took place at that time. He says, on that same day, as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. And this is important for what he's about to to talk about. He said, for they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now, we actually looked at that and referenced that in our uh, Christmas series at the end of last year. Then verse 3, he says, When this passage of the law was read, all of those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. So in other words, like we said last week, the word of God convicted them it changed them. And so they said, we need to make some change. We're allowing people into here that have no intention of following God. They're only trying to mislead us from God. So we need to remove them from our family. So in verse four, it says, before this had happened, Eliashib, the priest who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, 
and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. So everything that was needed in regards to the offerings and the sacrifices that were made were kept in that room. But Eliashah pulled them out and made room for Tobiah. And then Nehemiah said, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. Though I later asked his permission to return to my homeland, is what he's saying. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned from Eli, about Eliashab's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset, and I threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified and brought back to the article and brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense. All right, we're going to pause here. We're going to stop here because I want us to see a couple of things. Now, if you remember. When we talked about opposition a few weeks back, when Nehemiah and the people were facing opposition, they were facing opposition from a guy by the name of Samballot. And Samballot's buddy that was with him was a guy by the name of Tobiah. You remember that? So Tobiah had been a part of the opposition that Nehemiah and the leaders had been facing from the very beginning about rebuilding the wall. Tobiah had been against what God had led them to do. Tobiah also had even hired a false prophet to come to Nehemiah and try to manipulate Nehemiah with fear, making him think that if you keep rebuilding this wall, someone's going to come and they're going to murder you. They're going to kill you. But Nehemiah knew he was manipulative. That's why he was reminding of that passage from where they tried to get Balaam to come and pronounce a curse, but God turned it into a blessing. And all this time, Tobiah had been against the works of God. But now, Tobiah, who had been against the works of God, had been given a room in the temple of God. Eliasha, a priest, who was given the opportunity to be a caretaker of of that temple, the place, the temple, the place where the people of God come to be comforted. They come to be encouraged. The people of God come to be confronted. The people of God come to be uh, uh, sent out for God. Tobiah was given a room to stay in. And not only that, everything that was used in sacrifices and offerings for God was taken out to make room for Tobiah. The temple of God, the place where we were called to worship God, the place where the people were called to worship God, and everything that was involved in the aspects of worshiping God were removed to make room for a man who was against the works of God. The temple of God became contaminated. And so the temple of God began to be misused. And here's what we need to be on guard on in our life. One of the things that we get from this that we need to watch out for, because if we're not careful, if we don't watch out for this, it will take us right back into our foolish ways. And that is that we need to be on guard as to who or what we allow to have influence in our life. You know, it it sounds like such a simple thing that we know. I know this. I know this. When I was a youth pastor, I would tell the teenagers all the time, because it's very important for them to know this, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Who you tie yourself with, that's, they're going to they're gonna have an important impact on where they lead you and where you go. And so, but we, we, we need to know this as adults as well. We need to understand this, because even as adults, we think, oh, I'm okay, it doesn't matter who I'm tied to, but I allow to have influence in my life. It's okay. They're not going to influence me, but before we realize it, they are. And all throughout the New Testament, we even see warnings about this. Jesus Christ warned about this. 
But I, I want to say this too, because this is important. And if you look at Tobiah and, and, uh, and Eliashab, Eliashab did this for Tobiah because they were related to one another. We need to understand that this is difficult, but we need to understand this. Our relational connections cannot carry greater weight and importance in our life than our spiritual connection with God. And that's hard. There was even one time where Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are out here. And he said, who, is my, who are my mother and my brothers? It's not that he was denying who his mom and his brothers were. He loved them. But the gospels also tell us that his brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah didn't believe that he was the son of God. So Jesus, even himself, there were times in his life where he was careful. There was times in his life when his teachings, he had the people surrounding him on the hillside. In Matthew chapter seven, we read this and he starts talking to them about guarding yourself and guarding who you allow to speak into your life. He says, be aware of false prophets and those who disguise themselves as harmless sheep because what they actually are, vicious wolves. You have to be careful. You have to guard against it. He says, and the way that you realize, the way that you start looking is you start inspecting the fruit of their life. What are they producing? What's the fruit of their life producing? The, b- b- their, their actions identify who they are. You're, you identify people by their actions. So he's saying you need to watch out for that. The apostles had to address this all throughout the early church and the birth of the early church. There was one time when, when, when Paul was in Thessalonica and he was telling the truth of God's word and he was telling the truth about who Jesus was and that he was who the prophets spoke about and who, who the prophets led up to. And, and he was telling them they need to understand this, but there were Jews who, same group of people who had had Jesus killed, heard that Paul was out there teaching this to the others and they didn't want this truth to be spread. So they went and they ran them out of Thessalonica and it ran them into, uh, a town called Berea. You read about this in Acts chapter 17. Luke writes about it in the book of Acts. And so they go into Berea and they begin to tell the Bereans this truth. And they begin to describe to the Bereans who Jesus was. And I want us to see the words that Luke wrote that describes what's happening while Paul and the others are teaching these guys. Listen to the heart of these guys. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. says, The people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. So they were listening eagerly, eagerly. And then look at what he says they did. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. So they listened eagerly. And you're thinking, well, why do they need to search the scriptures to know if Paul and Silas were telling the truth? Did Paul and Silas lie? The Bereans didn't know Paul and Silas. Like we read and study and know who Paul and Silas is. These are new people and they're telling them this new truth. And so they have to, they go and they begin to research from the prophets what the prophets said about a Messiah. And everything that happened in the nation of Israel leading, they're researching it. And then they realize, wait a minute, they were telling the truth. And look at what they did. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. So in other words, now what we're seeing happen, Paul Paul and Silas are seeing happen, is what Jesus said. It's not just for the nation of Israel. It's for every man and woman and child. It's for the whole world. So the gospel is now changing lives. But they inspected what they were hearing through the word of God. We need to do that every day. We need to inspect what we hear and are being told is truth. We need to inspect it with the word of God and see, is it really true? Does it line 
up. Paul would write back to Thessalonica and he would write back a couple of letters. And in his first letter, as he's nearing the end of his letter in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, he, tell, he makes these couple of statements. He says, don't scoff at prophecies. In other words, if people are speaking things to you from God, don't scoff at them, but instead do this. Test everything that's said. So don't just write them off, but you need to test them. And then he says you need to hold on to what's good and stay away from every kind of evil. In other words, if it lines up with the word of God after you've tested it, hold on to it because it's good. But if it doesn't, it's evil. Don't follow it. But he's reminding them you need to test it. Paul would write back to the church of Galatia. And he, he had found out, you know, that some things are happening in the church of Galatia, that they're starting to, to fall back into these legalistic ways that Jesus Christ had freed them from. And so he writes back to him, and I want us to see a statement that he makes, a question that he asks. It's in Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 7. He says, you were running the race so well. Look at how he starts this sentence. Look, what is he, he says, who? Not what. He says, who? Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for he's the one that called you to freedom. So Paul knows that they have given their ears to someone that's misleading them. They've allowed someone to begin to influence them in a way that's not helpful. It's harming their life. And then in the very next verse, he says this, this false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. In other words, if you listen to that, you just start listening to it, start, start letting it feed into your life. What's going to happen? It's going to get in. It's going to mix into everything that God's trying to do in you. And it's going to mess up what's being made. Now he goes on in that and he tells them, look, God's going to judge that person. God's going to judge the person that's misleading you. So anybody that proclaims the truth of God, we know. And we realize that God's going to judge us based on what's taught. When you speak the truth of God's word, God judges. So we, we better make sure we are sharing God's truth. And we better test what we're hearing. Paul would write his spiritual son, Timothy, in his second letter. And he would tell him, look, you need, to, you need, you need this warning. You need to be on guard about this. And it's a warning that we need to listen to today as well. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 is where we see it. He said, I, I urge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who will someday come and judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Look at what he tells him to do. He tells him to preach the word of God. Nothing else. Just preach God's word. Preach what God has done from the very beginning and what God has done through Jesus Christ. Preach his word. He says, be prepared whether time is favorable or not. He says, patiently correct, rebuke, encourage your people with good teaching. And then listen what he says is going to happen. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They're going to be swayed. They're going to be misled. They're going to let twisted truth sound like truth. He says they'll follow their own desires. And they'll look for teachers who will what? Tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. And we are seeing that more and more in the church world today, unfortunately. Where people are just grabbing onto things that sound right and feel right rather than searching the word of God and knowing, is it right? And it's tickling their ears because it sounds good and then they're following that. But what happens when you follow that? Paul tells Timothy, he says, you're going to reject 
the truth and you're going to chase after myths. So you think you're chasing after truth and you're, you're, these people are twisting truth and they're, they're misleading people and they're taking them away from truth and they're taken right into a myth. Because if it's not of Christ and it's not according to his word, it's not the truth. Over and over, Paul would tell us in his letters, he says, you are the temple of the living God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that is why we have to be on guard as to who or what we are giving residence to in our temple. Because if we're not careful, we'll be giving residence to something or someone in our temple that is going to cause us to misuse our temple. And we're going to fall right back into our foolish and destructive ways. So we have to be on guard on that. So let's jump to Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. Let's look at one more thing that we need to be on guard of. Nehemiah said, In those days I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men were from uh, some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. I said, "Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way? Wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all the trouble upon us and our city?" Now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel for permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way. Now, the Sabbath was something that was given to the people by God because it was given with wisdom and care and love for God's people. And now the people of God are violating that wisdom. They're violating that love. They're violating that care by continuing to work on the Sabbath, even though God had told them, this is a time you need to rest. But basically what the people were saying was, well, we know better than you, God. Because if we work on the Sabbath, we're going to get to make more. We're going to make more for ourselves. We're going to make more for the people. And, and, you know, we're just going to make more, produce more. But God's saying, if you don't rest, you're going to destroy yourself. If you don't let the land rest, the land can't restore the nutrients that it needs to produce what you want it to produce. And that's why God had created these times of rest and these times of Sabbath and put them in place. And this is what Nehemiah was reminding them. He's like, look guys, this is exactly what got us into captivity in the first place by Babylon. We, we, we were continuing to work on the Sabbath and not letting the land rest. We weren't resting and we were acting like we knew better than God. And we wouldn't listen to him warn us to turn away from our sin. And so we got put into captivity. Because we thought we could do more for ourselves, making a name for ourselves. But the origin of the Sabbath, it comes from the creation when God created everything. And after he realized it was all good, he rested on the Seventh day to, to give a principle and to give a pattern to establish something saying, this is what you need to do because you need to do this for your life. And so God gave this to the Israelites and it wasn't just a day of physical rest. It was a day of complete cessation of work and laboring. But now everything that's in the old Testament, everything we see in the birth of the nation of Israel and on through until Jesus Christ, it was all leading up to Jesus. So even the Sabbath points to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament laws, once they began to be established, 
it was a whole list of laws that the Israelites had to labor in, to constantly labor in and do, to keep up with having some acceptance in God. There were ceremonial laws, there were temple laws, there were civil laws, and all these 600 and some laws that they had to follow, it was hard for them to follow. So God gave them an array of sacrifices and offerings that they were to do to allow them to have forgiveness from God and restore relationship with God. But those sacrifices and those offerings were all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would come through Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews says, he made this statement. He said that after Jesus had offered one sacrifices for the sins of all men forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. And the author of Hebrews tells us that as he sat down, he sat down in a new rest that was given to the people. And there's a new rest that is available for the people of God that can be found in the people of God. Jesus rested from performing the ultimate sacrifice. And because of what he did, we no longer have to labor in our life and keeping, uh, and keeping in this, uh, these, these different things in order to justify ourselves before God. We just need to rest in what Jesus has already done for us and then reflect him through that life. So we have to guard ourselves against this tendency to work for what makes us look good, to work towards what makes us, to what we think is producing more for our life. We have to guard against that tendency and instead just rest in and reflect the one who has already done what we need done and who is good. You know, our identity is not found in what we can do. Our identity is not found in what we can make of ourselves, of what we can produce in ourselves. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. Our identity is not found in our ability to clean ourselves up. In fact, probably, you know, probably one of the better things we're at than messing our lives up is the inability to fix our life. We can't fix our life, but what we can do is we can put ourselves in a position to allow God to move in our life and fix the things that need to be fixed. So we rest in him. Over and over we see Nehemiah saying, God, remember me for the good that I'm doing. Remember me for the good that I'm doing. We live from a different perspective. We don't have to pray and seek God and ask God, remember me for the good that I'm doing. We need to just remember the good that Jesus has already done for us. And reflect that in our lives. And let the good that we do reflect that. It doesn't mean we don't do. It doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean we don't produce. But it means we trust God as we do it. And we follow his wisdom. And we follow his direction. So don't drift towards making yourself look good. Don't drift towards trying to produce something in your own strength, in your own self. Rest in the one who is good. And let the good that you do reflect what he's done in you. Because if you don't, then what we'll do is we'll find ourselves falling back into those foolish and destructive ways in our life. One more thing from Nehemiah chapter 13. Start in verse 23. Nehemiah says this. It says, About the same time I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Am- Ammon, and Moah. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not even speak the language of Judah at all. The more you blend your faith, 
The more you allow your faith to be blended, the more you're going to find yourself speaking the language of this culture and this world than you are speaking the language of God and the Word of God. You have to guard it. And he says, so, I confronted them and I called down curses on them. He said, I beat some of them. (laughs) I pulled out their hair. We'll talk more about that in a second. He said, I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the world, of the land. And then he asked them again, wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? It's like Nehemiah saying, guys, isn't it better to learn from other people's mistakes than make them on our own? He says, there was no king from any nation who could compare to him. And God loved him and made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by the foreign wives. This blended faith that he had brought into his life. He said, how could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? In other words, like we said a couple weeks ago, by blending your life of faith in God with a life opposed to God. That's what he's talking about. Why are we blending our faith? See, what, what happens... Here in this section of Nehemiah chapter 13, what Nehemiah sees happening, what we see happening, it's what's been happening over and over, and it's what happens in our lives constantly as well. It's a tendency to grow less and less serious about holiness and allow ourselves to blend our faith with the ways of the culture and the world. To not, to forget and to not honor and realize that God has called his people, his church, to be set apart. To be different than. To have a different level of standards to live by and to live up to. So I'm not going to go deep into what we see happening here about the sin. Because we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We talked about it in in week five. About confronting that sin that wants to take us down. But I do want to point out something that's hard for Nehemiah to understand. It's hard for for, to, to understand in itself. And that's like he's constantly asking, do you not remember? In other words, guys, why are you letting this come up? Why aren't you getting upset that this is happening again? Why does someone have to come in and point it out? Why can't you see it yourself? And Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Corinthian church, he he was writing to them and he was talking about the way they were abusing uh, communion. And he throws this statement in there as he's kind of correcting them about how they're abusing communion. He throws this statement in and he, ba- he tells them, he says, if you would examine your own self according to the standards of God, if you would examine your own self and what God has laid out, then I wouldn't have to come in here and confront you about it. You wouldn't have to be judged over it. If you would take the time to examine it yourself. In other words, what Paul is saying is if you would just get upset and angry about sin in your own life, then nobody else would have to be. Don't become open to and accepting to sin. Don't let it deceive you. Get upset about it when it tries to come into your life. And don't give it room. As you may have noticed, we pointed out, Nehemiah had some angry responses to what they were doing. 
David had written in Psalm chapter four, verse four, he had wrote these words. He said, don't sin by letting anger control you. He says, think about it overnight and remain silent. Nehemiah is frustrated. (laughs) He's frustrating that this same sin is happening over and over and over and over again. They're not learning from it. They're not changing. And so he just reacts and he responds. And he starts beating some people and pulling air. Could you imagine if we did that today? I mean, we wouldn't be having two services if that's how we led the people of God at this church. We wouldn't be having one service probably if that's how we led by beating people and slapping people and pulling hair. Just doesn't go over the same today. I don't know if it went over then either, but here's the thing. There is a thing, there is a such thing as righteous anger. But we cannot use righteous anger as a guise to sinful anger. You can't react and respond with anger and cover it up with righteous anger. There are things that are meant to be gotten angry over. The psalmist says, you love the Lord your God, you should hate evil. We talked about the Sabbath earlier. Well, there was a moment in Jesus' life where it was the Sabbath. And he was approached by this. He was in the temple and there was a crippled man there. And he started noticing all the Pharisees were watching him. What is he going to do on the Sabbath? Is he going to heal this guy on the Sabbath like he's done other people? Because if he does, guess what? He's working on the Sabbath. That's what what they say in their minds. But Jesus Jesus is like... You guys have a twisted understanding of the Sabbath. You still don't get it. So in Mark chapter 3, we see this story in this account of what happens. Mark tells us about it. In verse 3, it says that Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, he said, come and stand in front of everyone. I love Jesus so much. I love how how he handled things. I wish I was as cool as Jesus. And then he turned to his critics, verse 4 says, And he asked them, he says, guys, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? In other words, is it okay, guys, to keep working and keep working and keep working just so you can make more money for yourselves on the Sabbath? Or should we use the Sabbath to do something good for somebody else? Should we use the Sabbath to, to bless somebody? He says, is this a day that we should save life? Or is this the day that we should just keep doing things on the Sabbath that's going to ultimately destroy our life? Which one is it, guys? And then he goes on and he says, they wouldn't answer him. (laughs) I bet they wouldn't. So he looked around at them, how? Angrily. I imagine this is that look, you know, you've been a, if you're not a parent, you've been a child at one point. This is the look, Right? That, you, that the, the parent gives, this is the look, the angry look. Jesus is looking at him. He's giving him the look, right? And he was deeply saddened. Why? Because of how hard their heart was. Because Jesus knew the only thing they loved was themselves. They didn't care about anybody else. They only loved themselves. And so he says to the man, 
He says, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. Because that's what Jesus came to do. That's what the Sabbath is all about. It was to restore. (laughs) So that we can produce the way we should. You see, we, there are things like Jesus was angry and he was upset and he was, his anger was because he was so sad at how hard their heart was. Sin and evil in this world should cause us to be angry. It should cause us to be upset about what we see it doing to people, to destroying people's lives. Even the ones we love, family members, destroying them. And there should be an anger in us about that. But how we respond to that anger is important. We get angry, but we don't respond in anger. James, when he's writing his letter to James, the brother of Jesus, he writes, as you see in chapter one, he tells them that you need to be slow to be angry. Just like David wrote in Psalm chapter four, verse four. Don't be so, don't be so quick to react in your anger. So be slow to be angry. Because he tells them, he says, if you react and respond in your anger, it does not produce the righteousness of God. You're not producing the righteousness of God in that situation. So later in his letter, in chapter 3, starting verse 17, he begins to tell them what does produce the righteousness of God. He says, the wisdom from above is first of all, what? Pure. And then look how he says it is. He says, it's peace-loving. It's gentle at all times and it's willing to yield to others. He says it's full of mercy. It's full of the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It is always sincere. And he says those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace. And this is when you reap a harvest of righteousness. And I get it. It's hard. Sometimes you can be so pushed in your anger over things. But we have to be kept, we have to keep in mind: Are there things to, that are ju- that justify the emotion of anger? Yes, but it never justifies a response and a reaction in anger. Over and over in Paul's letters, he tells people, he tells them to to put away anger. He tells them put away rage, put away malice, put away slander. Walk away from those things. Put those things away. Because the wrong response and anger, it'll rob you of the joy that God has given you. It'll rob you of the joy of the Lord that is your strength. And the anger will also rob you of the impact that you can make for God's kingdom and what God wants to do through you. So we need to be on guard for how we respond to the things that may rightfully make us angry, but how we respond to those things. I'm still trying to grow in that. Just like I'm still trying to grow in so many areas in my life as a follower of God. And just like I'm sure that so many of you are still trying to grow in those areas in your life. When we look at these stories that we have seen in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that the people, they're out of exile, but they're not out of their old ways. Because the people needed more than just to change their behavior. They needed a new heart. They needed a change of heart. It's what we need. 
And we find ourselves in these stories often. We find ourselves in these situations. But the good news is, we live from a different starting point than the people of Ezra's day and Nehemiah's day. And I want us to show you, I want to show you a prophecy from Ezekiel. When the people were still in captivity, Ezekiel spoke these words, starting at verse 22 of Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back, but it's not because you deserve it. He says, I'm doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show how holy my name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you, remember that. When I reveal my holiness through you, before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. For I will gather you up from all nations and I will bring you home again to your land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a what? New heart. Exactly what we need. He's not just looking for us to change our behavior. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart with new desires, with new pursuits. And I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stubborn, stony heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I'll put my spirit in you so that you will what? Follow my decrees. Your behavior will change because your heart has changed. And the spirit of God in you is changing you. And you'll be careful to follow me in obedience. He said, I will reveal my holiness through you. Jesus Christ is the holiness of God that was revealed through the nation of Israel. And we have the opportunity to live from that perspective, from realizing that Jesus Christ has given us a whole new starting point, that we now live from the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. He died on a cross and he was resurrected so that we aren't just forgiven of sin, but we have power over sin in our life. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. And next week, we're going to celebrate that resurrection. That's like we do every week. But we'll be celebrating with the whole world next week and Easter weekend. So I encourage you to invite, bring some people, get somebody here that needs to know about the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And to understand that the life of sin that we allow ourselves to be chained to, is only going to bring destruction. But we need to allow ourselves to be chained to the goodness of of God and let God take our heart and make it new to be born again as Jesus would say and to be made new in him and then just like Jesus promised his disciples he would send his Holy Spirit to live in us and to guide us and direct us he wants to give us a new heart he wants to give us a new spirit so that we even though we might be prone to wonder we won't because we'll be bound to him Stand with me this morning. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566 and we will 
be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.